Good morning, everybody. It is good to be with you. I'm grateful for this time. And Jay's right. The time we've already had in worship has been so wonderful. Uh, I know we, uh, you feel like I do probably like these gatherings on Sunday, we play them by ear. It feels like just week to week, are we going to get to continue to do this? And how are things changing and uh, moving within our community? And so these times we can worship and be in God's word together. I'm just, each one is special. And so welcome to those of you at the downtown campus, those that are watching online. Uh, we are making our way through First John, kind of getting towards the very end of that letter. So uh, we're going to be there in just a moment. As Jay was talking, it reminded me of what Jay and Megan did, his wife, uh, a few weeks back. They hosted an evening in which they began to talk about what does it look like to introduce Christ into the conversations that we're having at home, at work, at school. And so they were just presenting kind of ways, uh, not necessarily kind of like do this, do this, not like a formula, but what does it look like to just begin to talk about Jesus in a way that's true and genuine, the things that you know about God, the things that you've seen and experienced about his love and, and our hope that other people would also see and know those things. And so one, I, I thought the evening was great and I'm going to encourage them to do that again towards the first of the year that we have an opportunity again to kind of have other people back in the room that have a chance to listen to that. But one of the things that they highlighted that I think is true that you'll see throughout the scriptures is this idea of how do we talk about Christ and should we talk about Christ? Jesus said in Acts 1 verse 8 that at one point that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon the believers, the, the disciples and the apostles, and then when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, that they will be Christ's witnesses. And they will be the witness of Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this idea of being a witness, it's, it's talking about what you've seen. Uh, talking about what you know about a certain experience or a certain person. And this idea of witness takes me into all of those great TV and movie moments. You know, the courtroom is great drama. And so we have lots of shows and lots of movies that we've watched over the years that kind of highlight this very thing. And so you get, you know, to, you know the time to kill. The closing statement by Matthew McConaughey. Of course, my wife likes to say Matthew McConaughey, hey, hey, hey. And I'm like, honey, I'm right here. Like, you know, I mean, we're watching the same show. That feels, that feels rude. Or, or you get a few good men with Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, Tom kind of demanding, I want the truth. Jack's like, you can't handle the truth. You know, that, that kind of moment, like, great. Or maybe the best of all, Reese Witherspoon, legally blonde, right? She kind of cracks and catches the, the star witness in a lie that of course everybody knows that you don't take a shower right after you get a perm at the hair salon, right? And the court goes into pandemonium. It's, it's cinematic magic. You know what I'm talking about. This courtroom and this idea of giving witness, of testimony, testifying, this courtroom picture, this metaphor is something I, I kind of want you to begin to listen for as we look at 1 John, what he writes in, what John writes in 1 John chapter 5. Because John is going to lay out for us some very special witnesses, let's say. Some very special testimony. And so just be watching for this. As we read it, listen to what you begin to see. This idea of uh, bearing witness and of giving testimony. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, that's what we're going to pick up today. It says, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water alone only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies 
because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and all three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out, who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in the son. Whoever has the son has life. Who does not have the son of God does not have life. So did you see it over and over Throughout 1 John, you get this idea of kind of a, the word that's being kind of offered in testimony, that people are testifying, there's speaking going on. And so John is really setting us up for this very curious grouping of those who are going to give witness. And throughout John's letter, he has been kind of coming back to over and over this question of who is Jesus? kind of offering us out insight over and over into the identity of Jesus. That's been often his guiding idea throughout this letter, that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, both fully God and fully man. And John is talking about this because there was this idea, this kind of disassociation that was happening within John's audience, that if Jesus was really kind of only God or only man, then there would become a divide in our faith. But, but Jesus was both spirit and flesh. And because Jesus was God and man, spirit and flesh, then what happens for you and I, what happens for the Christian, is our lives also are spirit and flesh. Meaning our belief in God translates into a practice and a lifestyle this is what we see with God, that God, this kind of the spirit of God comes in flesh and becomes physical, becomes tangible, becomes material. And your life, too, because of your belief in God, your life, too, also is spiritual that turns into practical, that turns into tangible, that turns into physical acts of love and obedience. To know God the way that John is offering us insight into is to have our lives integrated both spirit and flesh, faith and practice, and that goes back to the incarnation. That goes back because God in Christ was both God and man. This other interesting heresy that was circulating around John was this idea that Jesus was really just Joseph's son. And in Joseph's son, at his baptism, that the Spirit of God came and empowered Jesus in that moment. And at that moment, Jesus took on the power of God and began to do all the miracles and signs and wonders that we see him. But the Spirit of God departed from Jesus on the cross and Jesus died just a man. That was this idea. And, and that teaching is certainly something John has in his view as he's talking about how we know who Jesus is and the witnesses that begin to testify that he came not just by water, but by blood as well, and by spirit. So what does that mean? Like, what, what is he doing by arranging these multiple voices, these multiple testimonies? And it would be the same thing for you and I. If you heard an incredible story that your friend was sharing with you, you might walk away from that going like, okay, that's a pretty good story, but I think that's unbelievable. Like, that couldn't have really happened. And then you run into another friend who agrees with what the first friend said, and then you're like, wow, okay, I have two people right now that are saying the exact same thing, 
there may be some truth behind this. And then a third friend of yours comes in and agrees with what the other two have already said. At that point, you're like, I think this thing happened. I think this really took place. And John is lining up with what you and I would just say. It's just kind of believable, verifiable testimony. Jesus mentioned this in John chapter 8. Paul highlights this in, 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. He says this, every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Right? That just makes sense. Honestly, I, I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. So it wasn't just for friendship or community. It was for corroboration. That as one person would witness and testify to Jesus, you'd have the other disciple there, the other apostle, one like, he's right, I saw it. I know this. I can also, I was also a witness to this. And all of a sudden, the testimony of two or three becomes enough to make a ruling. It becomes enough information to bring judgment to some kind of decision. And this is what John is bringing us to. John is trying to bring each of us to a point of decision about who Jesus is by these three very curious witnesses. And I'll offer you, this may be the most mysterious uh, and hardest section of John's letter to understand what does he mean that he came, Jesus came, not just by water, but by blood as well. Well, he's addressing this, this idea of water. Many theologians and scholars believe that what John is referencing in this moment is Jesus' baptism. And so Jesus just wasn't revealed as the Son of God, our Messiah, Lord and Savior, at baptism, but he came by, revealed by water, and revealed by blood, the cross. Both of those things reveal Jesus to be the Son of God, not just the baptism, but the cross as well. And so let's, let's look at this more closely. Like, what do these witnesses actually say? What is the water? What is the blood? What is the Spirit? What, what are they actually saying? So turn with me, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3, verse 13. What do these witnesses actually reveal? Why is John lining them up the way he is? And what is he trying to tell us about the identity of Jesus? So Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. So let me tell you what's happening. So, so John, John the Baptist, is this kind of forerunner of the Messiah. And, and as John is preparing the way for the Messiah, he's this kind of call, the last kind of prophet before the Messiah would come. John is kind of in the center of a renewal movement of Israel kind of returning to God, of turning their hearts to God. They're believing, they're confessing, they're repenting, and it's all around kind of located at the Jordan River. Now, the, the Jordan River is a faith landmark for God's people. The Jordan River is the place where following the Exodus, as Israel was freed from captivity in Egypt, and they traveled through the wilderness, they heard God's voice at Mount Sinai, they get to the Jordan River, and the Jordan River is what they need to cross to go into the promised land, to take the promise of God, the land, to rest there, to be God's people and to inhabit it. But they bump into the Jordan River, and there's all kinds of faith moments that happen in the Jordan. And Israel, you know, 
tries to cross into the promised land, but they shrink back at one and they wander for another 40 years. And so here they are at the Jordan River again. They cross over into the promised land and they take the land as you see that through Joshua. John is set up at the Jordan River and he's bringing the people to this very same moment. This moment is a place of faith. This moment is a place of movement from captivity and slavery of who you were to now sons and daughters of God, captured by him, liberated for him. And so as John is preaching and people are walking in the water and they're being baptized and they're turning their hearts to God, Jesus shows up. Now John has already identified Jesus as the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. He's already pointed at him as that person. And so Jesus steps into the water and they have this curious exchange. John's like, do I need to baptize you or do you need to baptize me? Like, this feels wrong. And Jesus says, you need to baptize me to fulfill the word of God, the will of God, all righteousness. What is he saying in that moment? What is Jesus doing, being baptized? What Jesus is doing in this moment is he steps into the water. He steps into our struggle, our place. He comes alongside us in that moment. Hebrews chapter four, verse 15 says that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. When Jesus steps into the water, when he steps into this kind of renewal, repentant moment, he's stepping into our shoes. He's coming alongside us. He's fully God and fully man. Meaning he, he knows us. He has put on himself. He has taken up humanity so that he knows what it's like to have hard day. He knows what it's like not to have a place to lay your head. He knows what it's like to be tempted, to be mocked, to struggle. Like when Jesus steps into the water, he steps into the water as God with us. Like the God who walked in our shoes. And in doing so, Jesus steps into the water, kind of modeling what a life turned Godward really looks like. He came to be our Savior, but he, he came to serve us, to, to join us, to take our place. And that's why Jesus is in the water, and that's why he's being baptized with us. And when Jesus gets baptized, Matthew highlights this in verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting or resting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. It's, this moment is kind of gathering up all of these other historical milestones that we see throughout the Old Testament, kind of gathering up to this point to kind of see them kind of tied up in Jesus. That here we have God speaking. And when did God speak before? He spoke at Sinai, calling people to believe, calling people to have faith. And now he speaks from heaven again about his son and whom he wants us to believe in. He wants us to have faith in, and the Spirit of God descends like a dove and rests on Jesus. Where have we seen this picture of a dove before? The Israelites would have not missed this, but there was a dove that Noah sent out from the ark to try to find 
the promised land, to find a land that they could rest in, to find a future home. And when the dove returns to Noah with a branch, there was a signal that there was land for them to finally inhabit. There was a place where they could find rest. And when the dove descends upon Jesus, when the Spirit descends upon Jesus in this way, it's telling us that Jesus is the new promise. He's not just the new land, he's the new man in which you and I could find rest in, a future in. And God speaks it in this moment about who Jesus is, his son. The water testifies that Jesus is the son of God. This moment testifies that Jesus has come to be with us, to save us, to represent us, to walk in our, in our, in our path and to help us find a place of rest, a place of promise. This is the testimony of the water, the testimony of the blood. Turn with me, Matthew 27. The testimony of the blood, the cross, the crucifixion. As Jesus is on this Friday of this week of passion that we call it, already on the cross, here's what Matthew says in Matthew 27, verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lamach sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this moment of Jesus on the cross is within a holiday or a remembrance of Passover. Now, Passover takes us again back to this early exodus, back to this early movement and kind of uh, salvation that God brought his people to free them as captives from Egypt and to bring them into a new place of identity with him as God's people. And what God did in Egypt during that period, kind of breaking the hardened heart of Pharaoh to kind of release his hold on Israel, is he sent plagues. And the final plague that God sent that broke Pharaoh's will was sending the death angel. And as God's wrath and judgment fell upon everyone, Israelites as well, not just Egyptians, as God's wrath and judgment fell upon the entire region, every firstborn child and animal would be killed unless there was lamb's blood spread across the doorpost of your home. And if lamb's blood had been applied to the doorposts of your home, then the death angel passed over you. You were passed over. And that's where that name Passover comes from. They're remembering this moment where God's judgment and God's wrath passed over them through the sacrifice of a lamb. Now, the plague right before the death angel plague was this plague of darkness. The darkness fell upon Egypt for three days. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And now, Jesus, the firstborn, at noon, darkness falls across the land. He is in total and utter physical, external darkness. 
As we approach the cross, we begin at 3 p.m., Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this moment, this divine community, this mutual love that the Son has always experienced within the Trinity, between the Father and the Son, this love, this experience and fellowship is broken as Jesus, the Lamb of God, begins to take unto himself the sins of the world. And in this moment, Jesus' blood is shed as he begins to create a covering, as the firstborn creates a covering for all of those that have their sins atoned for, for all sins to be covered. And as he dies there, verse 50, Matthew 27 tells us, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. John chapter 19 tells us what Jesus said in this last cry. He says, it is finished. It's finished. What's finished? What did he do? What we realize this is Jesus has done all that is necessary for redemption. This word redemption, it is a weighty, wonderful, loaded biblical word about a purchaser buying someone or something to itself, buying someone or something that's indebted or in bondage, and you redeem it and you purchase it, you buy it, and you take it unto yourself. And so we understand that this Redeemer decided of releasing a person or an object. What Jesus has truly done here, he has done the work of redemption. John chapter 8 says that we are all, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. And so Jesus is saying everyone is a slave to sin because you sin. That sin is not just the bad choices that you and I make. Sin is a power and a bondage in all of our lives that cause us to be unable to make good choices. And so we live within this bondage of sin. But Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ cleanse our conscience so that we may serve the living God? See, up to this point, the animal sacrifices were never going to be enough. Honestly, the sacrificial system was a system of grace and faith because they could never fill the gap. They could never pay off the indebtedness for our sin. We needed someone to stand in our place, but not just someone to stand in my place. We needed someone to stand in everybody's place. And this is why Jesus, fully God and fully man, becomes the only, the only substitute, the only one able to take the cross to truly set us free. What those unblemished animals could never do, now Jesus, the perfect son of God, the firstborn, gives his life, sheds his blood, so that the death angel may pass over us. And then he says, it is finished. That's, those three words are in the original language are tetelestai. And tetelestai was what you wrote at the bottom of a bill when it was paid. It's done. There isn't anything more that needs to be done. And when Jesus said, it is finished in that moment and gave up his spirit, it says that something happened in the temple. Look with me. Something happened in the temple here. At that moment, verse 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks split and tombs broke open. I just have always been fascinated with this moment within this story and this testimony of the temple and this curtain. This curtain was 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, and it was, uh, the thickness of it was the width of your hand. I mean, this, was a, this curtain would be sizable. It would take 100 people to hang it. 
And so this curtain was what separated kind of the, the regular temple observances and sacrifices from the inner part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was, where the Ark of the Covenant was. The temple was a sign to all who would see it, no admittance, do not come in. The holiness of God, the presence of God was so palpable that only the high spirit, the, the high priest, one time a year could enter into that area of the temple and survive. And when Jesus died on the cross, and when he said, it is finished, the scriptures say that the temple veil was torn from the top to the bottom, maybe something heavenward to earth, that God had done it for us. And as the temple veil opened up, it means this, that the presence of God that had been limited only to a few, that the holiness of God, which would be all-consuming, was now available for all. This is a, that has global impact, that all of us might know God in an intimate way through his holiness and through the sacrifice of what Jesus has done for us. This was so profound that the scriptures record that a Roman centurion saw Jesus die and said, by his death, surely this is the Son of God. A hardened Roman soldier who had overseen likely hundreds of executions watched the circumstances around Jesus' death and gave us the first Gentile conversion, the first Gentile confession of Jesus' identity as this is the Son of God. That's the testimony of the blood. That's what the shedding of Christ's blood brings into view for us. What the, the details and the circumstances surrounding that, that God spoke through the water, that God spoke through the blood. And then John says, God speaks through the Spirit, the third witness, the Spirit of truth. Jesus said this in John chapter 15. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Paul picks this idea up too in Romans chapter 8, 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And this is the point that he's trying to make. As you see the, the water and the blood and the testimony that they offer about the truthfulness of Christ's identity as the Son of God and our Savior, the Spirit of God is also ongoing and working, bringing to life and energizing God's Word so that when you and I hear the gospel, it quickens something in our heart. It changes something. It creates faith that the gospel message alongside the Spirit of God testifying that that is true changes us into new people brings us into these great and amazing places of belief. That the Spirit of God is always doing this in our hearts and our minds. N.T. Wright makes this comment about the Spirit of God. Listen to what he says. God has given this witness by his Spirit to make the point that the world has indeed been overcome. No other God, no other power, no other being in all the world loves like this, gives like this, dies like this. All others win victories by fighting, this one by suffering. All other gods exercise power by killing, this one by dying. And this is the testimony of the Spirit, that Jesus really is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And his baptism revealed that. 
The, the crucifixion revealed that. And the Spirit now always, always advocating, always pointing us, confirming in our hearts what is true. These are the witnesses. And they have come to give us a divine testimony to who Jesus really is. A few years ago, I had kind of a, a unique opportunity to be a character witness for a friend in a trial. I had never done that before. And my friend was in a really challenging situation. He had been involved in a situation in which someone else had lost their life. And so the court was trying to make a determination of whether the man's death was justifiable or not. Was this self-defense or not? And so character witnesses were coming in to kind of testify on behalf of the defendant of like, well, what kind of guy is this? Like, would he intentionally kill someone or not? And so we, we showed up at the court case and uh, the defense attorney kind of looked at the gathering that was there in support and he picked out three of us to testify that day and I was, I was going to be one of them. And I remember walking up, sitting by the judge, you know, taking the witness stand, being placed under oath, sworn in, and I just was like, the weight of the situation was just heavy. And all I could say was, Lord, just help me be as honest as I can possibly be. Like, I just, I just, there, there's, there's so much in the balance right now. Just help me be honest. Just help me be clear. Because what the judge would decide at the end of the day would either send my friend to prison or would send him home. He would, either be, he would either go to prison or he'd be free. And after that day and after all the testimony, the judge ruled that my friend was free. John makes this point about testimony and who's giving it. And he says this in verse 9. John says, we accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his son. So John is saying this, that if, if you take three people and they all agree about the same circumstance, the same person, if they all kind of corroborate each other's testimony, if they bring each other into agreement like that, that type of testimony, that type of agreement is enough to render a fair and right judgment. Enough has been said. Enough has been heard. And this is what we begin to see in this case that John is, in a way, orchestrating about the identity of Jesus and who Jesus is. He's establishing that Jesus really is the Savior. He really is God's Son by the water, by the blood, and by the Spirit. Consider this. God himself is testifying about Jesus. God is testifying. And God is, listen, God is being as honest as he can and as clear as he can that you would have the information and the insight to know that Jesus really is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. This courtroom picture, you have these three heavenly witnesses testifying about Jesus. And really what John is doing is he's placing you in the jury like, to hear it, 
to hear the testimony of the witnesses and then, and then to render some decision to come to some point of judgment, either verifying that Jesus is Lord and Savior of the world or he's not. But here's the twist. This is the twist that John gives us in this setting. The twist is this, is that your decision about Jesus determines whether you go free or not. You're the jury, and yet your decision about Jesus is really going to determine your future of whether you go free or not. Although the witnesses are testifying about him, it's really your future that's at stake. Who do you say that Jesus is? Will you believe the testimony of God? Will you believe the witnesses? Will you accept Jesus? Will you reject Jesus? Will you receive him and believe in his name or not? Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. And this is why, church, this is why skepticism isn't just something connected to our modern sensibilities. Listen, you and I being skeptical, you and I kind of being resistant to this testimony isn't just because that we're modern and sophisticated. The Bible doesn't allow us that option that when you look at the testimony of God and what he's offering you clearly throughout history in the water and the blood and the spirit, if you don't agree with what God is saying, you're calling God a liar. I don't think most people believe that or, or sense that. They often think it's just a decision that I can make or not make. I can suspend it. Like, hey, your faith in Christ and all of what you believe, that works for you. I'm a little busy right now. I have other plans, other goals, other agendas. Listen, your faith, it, you know, glad you have it, but I'm really unsure. I'm, not, I'm kind of suspending decisions on the whole thing. I don't think there's enough evidence or enough testimony to actually confer that Jesus really is my Savior, and God would say he disagrees. In complete honesty and transparency and clarity, knowing the weight and gravity of our eternal futures. God has given us Jesus. And the water and the blood and the Spirit tell us He's the Son of God. He's our Savior. Will you receive Him? Will you believe in His name and have your future changed forever? Because John goes on to say, and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. What I love about this passage is God's not withholding from us. God, God's not being obscure about this. God's not being mysterious. God knows that you and I need life. God knows that you and I need purpose. God knows that you and I don't long for a life that feels just punctuated with birth and death and then there's no more. But we need meaning. We need eternity. We need something that transcends this, that moves us into something greater and bigger and more wonderful and glorious. And God knows that. And so God is not withholding life from you. But the way that you and I experience life is because it's through Jesus, because there's only one person who can save us. There's only ever been one God and man perfectly. He's the only one who can take your place on the cross, and he's the only one who can die for the sins of the world. It's Jesus. So there isn't any other option that we have. And the water and the blood and the Spirit tell us so. Over and over again, is the Spirit telling you this morning? Like my hope is this, is that if you've already trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, that there's something inside of you going, yes, yes, yes. I see it. I agree. I know. 
But if you've never done that, here's my hope. That you don't leave the room today unless you're free. Unless you've heard the testimony that has been held together for centuries to make clear to you the honesty of God and his hope that you would experience life. The question is, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Do you have the son? Do you have the son? And how you have him is to believe that he died on the cross for your sins, to agree with what I would believe the Holy Spirit already working in you to trust, to commit your life, to surrender. It doesn't have to be when you walk an aisle. It doesn't have to be when you sign a card. It happens right now. Do you believe? Can you agree with God? Because he who has the Son has life. Let's pray. God, thank you for being clear. Thank you for being honest. Thank you for caring, caring about our life and our eternity and coming alongside of us, serving us, walking in our place to the point of death on a cross. And God, you have spoken about Jesus and you have declared who he is over and over and your spirit is this inner testimony that speaks to our own spirit that this is true. And so God, I pray for us this morning that you would confirm faith, that we would leave here more resolved, more committed to this testimony of truth that Jesus is the Son of God and that for some in the room, God, that you would birth faith. That your spirit would grab hold of hearts downtown, online, here at the Cove and let us truly trust the testimony of God about Jesus and live. He who has the Son has life. God, may we leave this morning with the Son deep within every heart. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for everything that you've done and everything that you continue to do for your people. Pray this in your name. Amen.